0: we come back to where we started last week in our series out of the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, turn there this morning. If you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 980. And we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 for the entirety of the message. And Our goal together, um, in our times together for these upcoming months, is to learn from God's Word how you and I can experience and live lives of joy no matter the circumstances or the crisis that come in life. Jesus told us in this world we were going to have trouble, and many of us have experienced that trouble in this previous week. As a pastor, I'm in tune with what's going on in the lives of, of the flock that I lead. And, and let me share a couple with you this morning that were going on just this very week within your flock. One of our members lost their job that they were at for many, many years and, and out of the blue was told, we no longer need you. That's a crisis. And that's a place where, where that family, it's real easy for them to lose joy. We had another uh, member of our church that lost their mom this week. A mom, of course, very close to uh, her in her relationship. And, and to have to say goodbye in death is, is many times something that robs us of our joy. I've heard of family members or or families that are struggling. I heard of one uh, dealing with an older child and the struggles of of life and circumstances and a parent watching their child struggling can bring them to a place of tears. And let's not forget the medical issues and the financial woes and, and the relational distress. Let's not forget the anxieties and concerns about the future We, many of us in this place, have experienced that this week and and have been tempted to throw away our joy because of the circumstances and crisis of life. Now, I don't want to be a prophet, but I've known this for too long as a pastor and just an individual uh, as a pilgrim in life that some of us, God forbid, some of us this week, unknown to us right now, will experience a crisis or a circumstance in life that is going to seek to rob you of your peace. You don't even know what you're worried about yet, but it may be coming. And it's in the moments, whether it was in the past week or in the week to come, those troubles that Jesus told us about are what keep us from living joy-filled lives. But let me remind you that when Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, it's not like he shrugged his shoulders and says, good luck. I hope you figure it out. It stinks to be you that day. Jesus said, but take heart. Be of good cheer is literally the rendering of that. And might I use a little uh, poetic license, be of great joy for I have overcome the world. And so this morning, as we continue to navigate this idea of joy and the difficulties of life, how are those two things that are opposed to one another merged together? How do we bring them together as Christ followers? The book of Philippians is our answer. The Apostle Paul has written this letter, it's 104 verses long, and in this 104 verse four chapter letter, Paul declares two themes. We talked about this last week, but just as a way of reminder, the first theme that we will address over and over again is joy. Shared more than 15 times in the text, joy comes out over and over and over again. And we'll see joy. And we'll see joy, relentless joy, amidst difficult circumstances. And we'll talk more about that. But let's be reminded that Paul is writing this letter of joy from a prison cell. That's why relentless joy is behind bars. Because the Bible makes it clear wherever we're at as a slave or free, in prison or not, In the good or the bad, we can experience joy. But that joy is connected to something. That joy is founded in something. That joy is established in something. That joy is rooted in something. This joy isn't just kind of hanging around some aura that we need to tap into. It is connected and bound together to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, that is the central theme of the book of Philippians. Jesus Christ listed more than 60 times in these four chapters. Jesus is where we find joy. So if you want to know, K-N-O-W, know joy, then you need to K-N-O-W, know Jesus. Now let's change that and understand if we don't have, there's no, and N-O oh Jesus, then there will be no, and N-O oh joy. And so what we need to continually do is connect our life, our circumstances, our difficulties, whatever they may be, no matter how horrific they may be affecting our lives, we must connect our lives to Jesus. And when we make that connection, we can and will experience joy. Amen? And so how do we go about that? We learn that joy is something that is fleeting in our world. We learn that joy is difficult to find. We learned that in uh, last week that the world counterfeits things that look like joy, but in the end leave us longing for more. And so how do we find that joy? In fact, let's start with what is that joy, and then two, how do we find it? So let's look at what is that joy. Kay Warren in her book, Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Good Enough, says the following. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. Let's stop there. You and I can have joy no matter what we face because we believe in a God who is more powerful, who is more mighty, who is more than enough to deal with To address all that concerns me, all that worries me, all that makes me anxious, because I have a God who is in control. And that God who is in control knows me. He knows my life, He knows my struggles, He knows my limitations. He knows all of that, and so I can have joy knowing I've got a God who loves me, who cares for me, who is concerned with me, and He's a God who is in control. I can find joy. Number two, it is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. That is, whatever my circumstances is, Whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's a loss of a family member, whether it's a uh, relational discord, whether it's a financial concern, whether it's a a, a sin that I can't get beyond, whatever it is, God, who is in control of my life, is going to take that which in the here and now is of great concern, may even be a great bother to me in the present, God is going to use to make something great and beautiful in the end. He's going to make all things perfect. And so whatever the trial is, wherever the struggle is, for Paul, it was a prison cell. Paul said, because I have a God who is in control of my life and who is able to address what concerns me, this prison cell is going to be used for my advantage. It's going to be used for the advantage of the church at Philippi. It's going to be used as an advantage in ways that I never saw or thought it was going to. Listen to me. I do not think, and you can argue with me on this, I do not think the Apostle Paul, when writing these words, said that people 2,000 years from now are going to find the secret of joy from the letter that he had. He knew that the, Philippi, the Philippians would, would experience joy. That was his hope. But little did Paul know, his prison experience was going to allow people a world away generations away from him to be able to experience joy. And that's God taking things that are hard and using them ultimately for the good, And so my job, in light of having this God who controls all things, knowing that God does all things well, and he uses trials and tribulations in my life to do good things for me and good things for the world I live in, then what I can do is I can make a decision to praise God in the storm, to praise God in the crisis to praise God in whatever affected me this last week or whatever will affect me in the week to come. I can and I choose to praise that God who is going to walk me through this trial and fill my heart with joy. So that is what we're looking for. That's what we're trying to attain. That kind of joy, how do we find it? How we find it is, is modeled for us in verses 3 through 11. And it's going to force us today, using Paul's prayer, using Paul's example, it's going to force us to ask five diagnostic questions this morning. And we're going to have to ask these questions if we desire for joy to be filled in the details, and elements of life. And so let's look at our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Starting in verse 3. Now what Paul is doing here is he's opening up his letter after a short greeting, and he gushes. In verses 3 through 11, we have really one run-on sentence going on. And the reason why I believe there's a run-on sentence isn't because Paul doesn't know how to use good grammar. Paul was a brilliant man. I think Paul's pen just got away from him as he began to express with great joy what had transpired. Have you ever been a part of something so great you just want to share it with someone and you come home and that's all you can talk about, what you just experienced? That's what Paul is doing. He is exploding with joy about what he knows of his God, of his of the people of Philippi, and about his own life. And so with great joy, let's look at this text. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you might approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. What Paul is doing is he is modeling for us how we can find joy. But we've got to ask ourselves some questions that no doubt Paul had asked of himself. Question number one How positive is my outlook? How positive is my outlook? Now let's take a moment and I want you to, in your mind's eye, envision what Paul's present circumstances are as he writes these words. Because as we put ourselves in Paul's shoes, sorry, in Paul's shoes, we begin to understand a little more what he's dealing with. Paul's in a gloomy dungeon, a jail. 24 hours a day he is chained to an imperial guard. That means that guard follows him wherever he goes. When he eats, the guard's there. When he sleeps, the guard's there. When he changes, the guard's there. When he showers or bathes, the guard's there. When he uses the bathroom, the guard's there. Now you're saying, hey, Tim, it's getting a little intimate here. Well, I want you to recognize that what he's dealing with, let's just be honest, would steal us or rob us of all joy. We would be... Taken out of a joyful spirit and put into places of despair. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. As he's writing this, the clanking of his chains is taking place. And in that moment, you would expect for most of us as human beings to get bitter, to get angry. Because human nature says when trials and tribulations like that come, our expression shouldn't be one of joy, but of some other things. Let's let's note some things. Because instead of being positive and filled with joy, many times what we do is uh, all manner of other things. Number one, we vent. Write that down somewhere. We vent. What that is is that uh, Paul doesn't open up his letter and say, oh my goodness, woe is me. Let me tell you how my day has been, Philippians. Let me tell you how bad I have it. Let me count the ways as how I've been mistreated and abused. Now, there's nothing wrong, and we all do it from time to time, of venting, of sharing our emotions with those closest to us. But can we not agree that that is a slippery slope that often what we do is we have no intention of fixing our problem or alleviating our problem. It's just therapeutic to just bemoan all of the circumstances that are around us. Paul doesn't do that at all. He states what his situation is, but he quickly pivots to what God is doing or what the Philippians are doing, which brings him joy. He didn't vent. And we need to be careful in our times of crisis that we don't simply vent as well. Number two, we need to recognize that it's not just venting that gets us into trouble, but it's playing the victim. Now, I want to be really careful in how I articulate this because Paul is, in fact, a victim. He has been mistreated. He is a victim as a Roman citizen. He should not have been imprisoned. He does has no idea how long he's going to be there. And so he's been a victim of of the state's overreach. He's a victim of bad circumstances. He was faithfully preaching Christ and now has been imprisoned. But what I'm talking about, because I want to be careful that I never minimize a victim in my midst, that there are good reasons for people to feel victimized because another person has harmed them greatly. This is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about of playing the victim is when you've experienced some level of mistreatment and you elevate it to be even worse. So yes, we're all victims in some small way to someone else. Living in this world, we will be victimized by people. People will hurt us. People will mistreat us. People will do things that maybe they know or don't know uh, that have brought us great harm. And the problem is, is, so often what we do is we become so melodramatic that it's as if we have been offended unlike anyone else in all of the world. Paul could have easily said, look how terrible it is, uh, how mistreated I've been, woe is me, look how bad this is, if no one has ever experienced such a terrible hardship, nobody has ever experienced the pain and sorrow that I've had. Listen, I've got it worse than anyone, feel my pain, Philippians. You don't see that in there either. Third, you don't see viciousness. But that's what we do when crisis and troubles come. We get vicious. Now, Paul could have gotten vicious with the state. He could have said, listen, I'm going to write a letter. I'm angry. I shouldn't be here. And I'm rotting in this jail. And I'm going to write to some people. I'm going to write a manifesto." Let me remind you that there was another man, another leader that was put in jail, and he wrote a letter, a manifesto. It was Adolf Hitler, it was Mein Kampf. And he, while in prison, put together some words, and they weren't filled with joy. They were filled with viciousness. I am wrongly accused, I am wrongly in this prison, and you know who is to blame? The Jews. And here is my plan to eradicate my enemy from the face of the earth. Paul could have said, you know who my enemy is? Rome. It's Caesar. It's the people that threw me into this prison. It is the people that mistreat me. And I'm going to write this revolutionary letter that's going to raise rebellion and raise all manner of wrath amongst the people who read it. And that is how I'm going to get through life. He doesn't do that. He says, I want to write about joy. Finally, we can be full of venom. Now, what's the difference? Viciousness and venom. Viciousness is poured poured out towards those who are our enemies. Venom is given to those who are closest to us. So what Paul could have done is he's penning these words... Is he could have unloaded on the Philippians. Oh, dear Philippians, you who are living in your homes, you who are with your families on the holidays, you who get to be part of a church must be nice. I'm in prison. But you've got a job. I'm in prison, and you are free. I'm in prison. You know, why is it that you're not in prison, but I am? Maybe I'm preaching the Gospel better or or more effectively than you are. Maybe you're not doing your job, and venom could have come out against the Philippians. You're not doing enough. You're not holy enough. You're not fixing my problem enough. And there's a lot of families, maybe even in this place today, Where because instead of choosing joy, we're throwing venom towards one another. And we do it with sarcasm. And we do it with joking. Because instead of joy, we have chosen to go the way of the flesh. And we pronounce judgments on people. Because listen, because we're unhappy about where we are at. Have you ever been a part of a relationship or maybe there's a family member in your midst who when they enter the room... They suck all the joy out of it because they vent and they're venomous and all of that. It's about them. Let's get a little closer to home. Maybe you're that person that sucks the energy out of the room because it's all about you. Notice what Paul says. He says, in light of all of his struggles, he says, I thank God. Don't let that pass you by. The starting line, listen to me so very carefully, the starting line towards joy is a thankful heart. If you're not thankful for what God is doing in your midst, you will never find joy that you need as you endure what you're facing. And so when you find yourself, listen to me, with a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one, a troubled child, difficult circumstances, financial woes, whatever that issue that you want to put in the the line is, start from a thankful heart. God, yes, I may be broke, but I'm glad I have you. God, I may have a child who has really messed up their life, But at least I have a child. God, I have got circumstances. I've got a boss who's going to drive me crazy tomorrow, who's going to yell and scream. But God, I thank you, I've got a job. You see, when we look at the positive, not the negative, when we begin to thank God for what we have, not mention to God all the things that we don't have, we begin to move on that journey towards joy. And so how positive are you? And I don't mean this Pollyanna approach, but there are surely things that God is doing in your midst. If you and I would just open our eyes, we would see it. But what happens is, The crisis and circumstances of life cause us to have blinders on and we can only see the problem before us. And what God is saying is a life of joy pulls those blinders down so that they may see, that we may see, all that God is doing. How positive are you? Number two. Let's ask a second diagnostic question. The second one is, how is my prayer life? Moving on, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. So this idea, what Paul does is he is in his prison, and he could focus in on all the things he can't do. I can't go from town to town and share the cause of Christ. I can't go from town to town and expand the kingdom of God. I can't go and encourage the uh, churches that I've uh, started. I can't do this. I can't do that. I I can't visit my friends. But then he stops, and at some point, and it was a decision he made at some point, I can't do those things, so stop dwelling on the things I can't do and start dwelling on the things I can. And what came to his realization is I can pray. I can pray. No, I can't go from city to city, but I can go from prisoner to prisoner, and I can pray for each of them. I don't don't think I can advance the kingdom like I once did, but I can pray for that kingdom advancement for the Philippians and other believers, as we'll see in the prison letters that he writes to the people that he loves so dearly. You see, prayer, what prayer does is prayer is a conscious decision of dependence that my circumstances are way bigger than I can handle And so I go to the only one who is able to handle them. You want to know if you have joy this morning? Do a test of how much you're praying. I believe with all my heart that if you are a joyful person, it is because God is showing you all that He is doing and not just focused in on your midst or circumstances, which is a rebuff To our constant cultural practice of prayers only being for ourselves. Notice in the text, my prayers are for all of you, not me, but I've got this pain. I'm going to pray for them. I've got this circumstance, but I'm going to pray for them. I've got this concern, but I'm going to pray for them. Now listen to me. What I'm not saying is that we should not request prayers for ourselves. But might I say in American evangelicalism, can we not agree that our prayers are far more self-centered than they are other-centered? And I get it because we're feeling it and and we know it and we're living it and, and it's big. But to find joy, we need to start praying for others. And so you had a bad week? I understand it. Who did you pray for this week who's enduring a bad week just like you are? You're having a troubled time with your kid? Who else needs prayer and is dealing with, listen, one thing I've come to recognize is I'm not the only one up at three in the morning, worrying and fretting. And if I will turn my attention to other people in prayer, you know what God begins to do? He reminds me about how good I've got it. Because what I've come to learn, what I've come to realize is I've got it pretty good in comparison to other people if I'll just open up my viewpoint, my perspective, I will learn that, yes, my problem is there, but my problem is what Peter says, there but light and momentary troubles. And so I've got a whole world of people who have got issues. I've come to, when trials come, and you'll hear this as, as time goes on, it's become kind of a motto of mine, when I share what's bothering me, after my venting which you should rebuke me for i will say as a reminder to myself first world problems first world problems and it's a reminder to me that people in this world have got it way worse than i do and my little american problems that i think are are so big are so troubling And yes, even in America, we have troubling moments and difficult times. But most of the time, what I'm bothered with, what's usually stealing me of my joy, is stuff that I take for granted that other people in the world would die for. And so I need to be giving that over to prayer and praying and asking God, God, open my eyes. Give me compassion for people who have it worse off. And so notice what Paul does. This is even more of a mature response. He prays for people that have got it better than he does. And he thanks God that they've got it better. When was the last time you were on Facebook and you saw something on Facebook or or Instagram where you began to covet what you saw because they, they had something better and you began to look at your life and say, well, mine's not as good as them, that you stopped and said, thank you, God, for that victory in their life. Thank you, God, for blessing them as you have. No, what we do is say, where's my victory? Where's my blessing? Paul says, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to thank God for what He's doing in your life, because I've come to realize what it's like to have little, and so you who have a lot, I want to thank God for what He's doing in your life. Notice question number three. As we pray, we need to ask the question then, who are we partnering with? Verse five. He goes on and he says, after praying this with joy, the reason why he's filled with joy is their partnership in the Gospel from this day until now. Now, this partnership is huge. Because This partnership is part of the reason why Paul is able to write this letter. Paul's in prison, and back in the Roman prison system, if you wanted to live, you needed someone on the outside who would visit you, and remember, this is what Jesus talks about, that remember those in prison. Why? Because in prison back in the day, they didn't have a prison cell with a bed and a toilet and toilet trees and the daily necessities of life. They were dependent on someone from the outside ministering to them. And so if you wanted to live during your prison time, you needed someone who partnered with you to keep you alive and keep you sustained so hopefully one day you'll be released. The Philippian church knows Paul's in prison and instead of simply remembering their good, remembering their joy, they entered into the sorrow and the pain and suffering of Paul. And they said in a church gathering like this, hey, that guy who led us to the Lord, That guy who started our church, that guy who has grown us and and helped baptize us and helped us see our neighbors and our family members come to Christ, he is now in prison for preaching that gospel. What can we do? And the Philippian church said, let's do something big. And they gathered provision and they gathered money. And they appointed a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, who Paul will mention later, heads out to be with Paul. And he provides. And he cares for Paul. And Paul says, listen, I'm filled with joy because of the partnership in the gospel from this first, from the first day until now. Now notice what he says later going on in verse uh, seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's like, I love you guys. Remember the beer commercial? I love you, man. That's what Jesus, I'm sorry, that's what Paul is saying. I love you. And the reason why I love you is you didn't forget about me. The reason why I love you is you care about me. The reason why I love you is that we're not connected by family. We're not connected uh, by uh, skin color. We're not connected because we all are a part of the same rich, snobby group in Philippi. He says we're connected. We're partakers in this together because of the grace of Christ Jesus. And so the question we have to ask is number 1 who am i partnered with? And so you if you're missing joy it may be listen it may be because you're living in isolation by yourself trying to do this thing all by yourself i'm going to lift myself up by my own bootstraps type of thinking because i'll tell you what you know where i find joy is in partaking in deep relationships, listen, with my friends who care for me, who are honest with me, who love me, who, who ask hard questions of me, and I'm filled with joy because I'm surrounded by people like that. And this has to challenge why we're here. Write this down, just three approaches to church community. Number one, I'll call it co-belligerence. That is where we get together because we've got a greater enemy outside. It's not so much that we are unified, but the only thing we're unified in is who our enemy is. The best way to envision co-belligerency would have been the relationship between Soviet Russia and the United States during World War II. U.S. and Russia, they hated each other during that time. But you know who they hated more? The Nazis. And so they're like, well, let's get together. Let's find unity. And our unity is in our hatred for something else. And some of us are gathered in this place not for community, But because we look at the world, and we look at what's going on in the world, and we want to gather with like-minded people who are just as angry and ticked off with the world as we are, and that's why we're gathered here today. Because we can come into this place, and no liberal's going to tell us what to do, and nobody's going to steal our ability to be the minority report of of what we think of the world. And so I've got this group of people that hate the world and, and, and hate the, uh, the government system and, and hate all of the vices that we have in the world. I got an appointment every Sunday to be with people like that. And quite frankly, I wish the pastor would talk more about that. Co-belligerency is not community. How about another one? Codependency. Codependency is this. I'm going to be connected to you because of what you give to me. I am going to, the only reason I'm connected to you is because you have something that through my manipulating, through my conniving, through my lying, I may get out of you that will make me better. You know, some are attending church out of codependency. And here's how. You come to church to receive, but never to give. That's codependency. I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to go to these people, and I'm going to receive. I'm going to take, I'm going to take, I'm going to take, I'm going to take. And and, and let's be honest, in a long-term relationship, there are moments, there are times... Listen, very carefully, there are times in my marriage over 20 years with Amanda that she was given 100% and I was given nothing. But that's not where I want to be as a loving husband. And those moments will happen, and that's the great thing about sacrifice. So what I'm saying is that maybe you came today and you just, I need to receive today. It's okay. But Sunday after Sunday, Event after event, I'm here to receive. And you know when you have a codependent spirit is when you become critical when the people you are dependent on don't perform. I don't like how they did that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, leave, I didn't leave blessed today. Why'd they sing that song? Why'd they play that instrument? Why did he preach that way? And what you begin to do is you begin to say to the person, listen, you're performing for me. Codependency does not bring joy in a marriage, does not bring joy in a family, does not bring joy in a friendship, and it will not bring joy in a church. And so what is this partnership that Paul is living out. Write these things down. I'm going to read them slow so you can do that. The partnership that Paul had with the Philippians, number one, was gospel-centered community. It was gospel-centered community. What brought them together, write these down, was they were partners who shared the same past. They shared the same past. What was their past? They were all sinners, They were all sinners. Number two, they shared the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And so these people in Philippi and Paul, they all knew they were sinners, and they all knew they fell short of the glory of God, and they all rejoiced that Jesus Christ had saved them from their sins. And that brought community because that same Jesus gave them a same purpose. And that purpose was not to live for the glory of themselves, but to live for the glory of God. It then led them to a same passion, that they were to go into all the world and to share that same gospel that saved them with others. It also gave them a similar hope because they had a same place they were looking forward to that on the day of Christ Jesus, twice it's shared in the text, that they would stand before their Lord and Savior and be ushered into eternity. A place where we will experience unspeakable joy. Listen to me, my friends. That's what brings us together. And that's what saddens me when I see gatherings where all we talk about is weather and sports, and politics. And very little do we share about the same person who saved us. And the same passion He's given us. And the looking forward to the same place where we will spend eternity in heaven. What your pastor is asking for is when we gather with people, that one of us would lead in that and say, isn't there something more we can talk about? We have far too much in common just to focus in on things that everyday, ordinary people talk about. We've been saved by the almighty grace of God. Let's talk about that and how that's moving and changing us. Who you partnered with? Let's move quickly to the last two. What is your life pointing towards? You want to find joy? Find purpose. Well, where is your life pointing? Notice what Paul says. He says, I am confident that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In verse 11 he says, I'm sorry, verse 10, that we might approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What is my life pointing towards? Listen to me. The life of a joyful Christian is fixated on the moment that he sees Jesus Christ face to face. And that is our north star. That is true north for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And if I can focus in on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, then whatever happens between here and me seeing Jesus is going to be okay. Because I'm looking in the face of Jesus. There's an old song that says, Turn your eyes on Jesus. And it says in the ending stanza, and the pains of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we look into the face of Jesus, we will be filled with joy. And so maybe this week or maybe last week you weren't living with joy. Let me ask you, were you looking forward with great confidence? One day I'm going to see Jesus. My parents lost their oldest son at 16 years of age, and they have joy. And here's why, because one day they know they're going to see not only Jesus, but they're going to see their son again. And it's that joy that pulls us out of our grief, pulls us out of our despair. What is your life pointing towards? If it isn't Jesus, know Jesus and, oh, Jesus, No joy. Let's look to Him and know Him. Finally, what are our priorities? Verses 9 through 11. He lists some priorities, and I'll just give them to you. You can study these more. And it is my prayer, verse nine, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What does our prior need to be? A growing love. We need to grow in love. And the only way you and I can grow in love is if we take our minds off of ourselves and start focusing on our others. Paul is going to say later, do not just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's why I love you moms. Because, moms, you have an uncanny ability to take your eyes off of yourself and to care for your family. That is where I'm amazed at my wife. She's other focused. Me, I'm only worried about myself. I take care of myself and I get in the car. I'm like, Where have you been? She's always the last one in there. And she looks at me like, Are you a fool? You walked out, down, and into the car. You never talked to anybody. I'm glad you got your one person together. I took care of the whole tribe. Others focused. Finally, it needs to be a growing life. We need to grow in this. We need to grow in this ability to find joy. How do we do it? With discernment. With knowledge so that as we grow, as we see God finishing this work in us, we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And notice what he says, and I'll close with this, that comes through Jesus Christ. Listen, you and I will not find joy on our own. You and I will not get through the crisis of life on our own. We need Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask Josh and the worship team to come forward as we close in prayer to make our prayer, how are we going to grow in love? How are we going to grow in knowledge? How are we going to grow in the fruit of the Spirit that will give us what we need? We need Jesus. And they're going to lead us in a song as we close, uh, us inviting Jesus so that this spiritual work, this spiritual checkup that needs to be done in our lives may take hold in our lives. And my prayer is little by little this week, we might see the joy of the Lord truly being our strength.